What is up, Team Church? Wow. Man, we have had some church already tonight, huh? And when I walked in and I could I could feel the disappointment in the room when they're like, his Darius is can you tan in reverse? Right? I don't know. And so I'll do my best to um, not make you too too disappointed. And I was um, thinking about all the great preachers that are here. I was looking around during worship, and I was trying to focus on God. And I was like, man, why they call me? Why they call me? You know, because that's what you're going to be thinking probably in just a minute. So pre- prepare to be underwhelmed. Is you're used to all these five-star anointings around here, and so tonight's more of your Motel 6 anointing. <laughs> but I want, I want to just say real quick before, before you're seated that, um, you know, Pastor Kevin and Sheila, when, when I got the message, so a couple of things real quick, if it's okay if I just talk. I, um, when you get a text from Pastor Kevin Gerald, and then it shows the phone call, like he's call, tried to call you, and it was like 30 minutes. It wasn't like I hadn't answered for like two days. It was like 30 minutes. And the text said something along the lines of, there's an emergency. I need you to call me back right away. Well, when you're a pastor and you hear someone like Pastor Kevin say there's an emergency, your mind's reeling like, what does he know that I don't know? Like, this is never good news, right? This is never a good thing. Like what preachers being an idiot this time, you know, like you're going through all this stuff in, in your mind. And, um, and so I'm bracing myself. I'm like bracing myself as I'm walking out of, of the gym. And, um, and he said, Hey, I had a cancellation you know, would you, would you want to come and do tomorrow night? And I'm like, man, what's the psalm? The psalmist says, we're like those who dreamed. And I was like, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to wake up. Can you thank God that Darius got sick? I don't know. I don't know if that's wrong, but I kind of was and hope he's not too sick, but anyway, I'm honored to be here. And, uh, pastor Kevin, Sheila, thank you so much. Um, you guys are legends. I don't know of anybody in the world that doesn't respect you guys. I've never heard one negative word. The, the, you, the respect that the body of Christ has for you is, is significant. And that you've been there for me over the years is also special. They were there for our family in one of our darkest moments. And so to be here is sort of very redemptive for me. So thank you so much. So can we give our pastors a good hand clap for you? You can be seated. Well, I, I spoke at a, um, a conference in Florida a few weeks back, and Pastor Kevin was there. And so he asked me specifically to uh, do the message that I'm going to do tonight. And um, before I get to that, just wanted to give you a, just a quick introduction to who I am. Um, I did not grow up in church. I went to a small little church. I actually met a man who became my youth pastor in the lunchroom at my high school. And I had no idea what that would lead to, but just the quick version of it, he invested time in me. I, was, I wrestled my whole life, and he said, if you'll, if you'll give me um, 
And I asked him if he would coach me because he was known as to be a, a very, he was a collegiate level wrestler, as a great wrestler. And um, I asked if he would, would personally coach me. And he said, I'll tell you what I tell other guys. If you'll, for every hour you give the church, I'll give you an hour on the mat. And I said, well, tell me, tell me where to go. I'll go to church. Well, I couldn't go to church on Sundays because I worked. And I ended up um, going to these prayer meetings. Now, you have to realize, like, y'all are spirit-filled, but you're cool spirit-filled. Like, you're cool, like, <laughs> radical for God. But, you, you know, you do it, like, I don't know, in a hip way. But I went to this little trailer, and, and, um, <laughs> and they're in there, like, screaming at the devil. They're pacing back and forth. Um, I mean, they're casting hell out of everything and and I didn't really mind because I knew I was going to get an hour you know of personal coaching for free and I didn't have no money and then they made really good uh, Mexican food because they were Hispanic and so uh, so I was eating enchiladas in the kitchen I would just peek out and they're just in there storming back and forth and there was a little white girl that that I went to school with and she was praying in a language I'd never heard before and so when we left, I said, hey, Sarah, um, I didn't know you were bilingual. And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you're in there like praying. Wasn't it like Spanish or something like that? And she says, no, I was speaking in tongues. And I'm like, what's speaking in tongues? So I got introduced to speaking in tongues before I heard John 3.16. So, so I'd never heard John 3.16. I'd never heard of David and Goliath, not one time in my life. Um, I didn't know Jonah and the, you know, the big fish. I didn't know any of it. And so, um, so yeah, so I, I ended up giving my life to Christ on a Saturday night at a youth event. And I remember uh, him preaching the cross in such an incredible way, like I'd never heard. And I knew he lived it by this point. And, you know, just the gruesome explanation of it was my sin who put Jesus there. And um, I went to an altar. I got saved. They gave me a little New Testament Bible I still have to this day. And they told me, you're a Christian now. You have to read this. Well, that's a big deal for me because I grew up in a home where my mom was a drug addict. She actually died of a drug overdose. And my dad's an atheist to this day. He's never really been to a church service that I've done. And so I've been senior pastoring for almost 17 years. I've been in full-time ministry for 24 years. been a Christian now for 30 years. And uh, I'm not saying it's a significant church, but it's worth going to see, I think, you know, if he's your son. But anyway, so so I had uh, lived with my mom in the inner city of Wichita, Kansas. And so where I grew up, I, I didn't go to school most days, I didn't even go to school most of my eighth grade year because I was the only white kid in an all black school. And I got jumped if I went to school, and I was this little old guy. And so um, I did have a friend named Earl who stood up for me. So whenever he was at school, I would go to school. And so anyway, long story short, I'd never, I'd never really read a book. And they gave me this little Bible. And they said, you're a Christian now. You have to read this book. And I immediately fell in love with the book, immediately fell in love with it. I had an insatiable hunger for it. If you looked at my senior pictures, I'm holding the Bible. I carried a Bible down the hallways of my high school every single day. If I had 10 minutes in a class, which I was most of the time reading my Bible even when I wasn't supposed to be reading my Bible. And um, I just fell in love with the scriptures. And so my point is I'm honored to be here amongst all you brilliant preachers. I'll do the best I can um, to 
to bring something to you that hopefully will be helpful tonight. But I just wanted you to get to know me a little bit. And so that's kind of my background, my story. And so, yeah, God bless you guys. Thanks for hanging out with me. First Samuel, first Samuel, chapter 10, first Samuel, chapter 10. Let's look at verse five. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days. Everybody say seven days. Until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. In my Bible, I don't know how yours is, but in my Bible, if they can zoom in there, it says Saul was made king. Saul was made king. And so I want to talk to you on that idea of king in a week. King in a week. Let's pray real quick. Jesus, we are so dependent upon you as leaders, as, as parents, as young people. God, I'm thinking about all the churches that are represented in this room. I'm thinking about all the different struggles people are up against. And Holy Spirit, we just want to welcome you into these next few moments. And Jesus, we want you to be glorified in these next few moments. We want you to be glorified in our churches. We want you to be glorified through what we do. And God, we want to make it. We want to go the long call. We want, we, 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 we want to finish this thing that we've started. And so, Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the quick background on this, you guys probably know about a little bit about it. But Saul is the ranch hand at his, um, his family farm. He's not the overseer of the farm. He's, he's not raising thoroughbreds. He's got the lowest possible task. He's got the menial task of taking care of some donkeys. And so he spends his days mucking stalls, baling hay, mending fences, and where the story picks up is he's actually failed at this basic task. task. He, he is preparing to be demoted, potentially lose his job. And so he decides he's, he's going to try to figure out how to keep his job because he's misplaced the family donkeys. How do you misplace a donkey? I don't know, but he's, he's figured out how to lose the family donkeys. And so he's out searching for them. And as he's looking for them, the Bible says Samuel sees him. And when Samuel sees Saul, he walks up to him, anoints, anoints him with a horn of oil. So oil is dripping all over Saul. He kisses Saul, blesses him with the favor of God and tells him specifically that you're going to run into this procession of prophets. And when you do, I want you to lean into them. And so he goes from that moment where he was anointed. He runs into this procession of prophets. He prophesies with them. The spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon him and he becomes a different man. And God says, whatever your hand finds to do, you'll do it. And then, God, and then Samuel says, and in seven days, I'll meet you and you'll become king of a nation. 
And so he goes from being a nobody to a king in a week. He goes from being a zero to a hero in seven days. He goes from donkey patrol to leading a nation in seven days. An overnight sensation, if you will. He's won the spiritual lottery. He has struck oil. And here we have this man that is the king of a nation and he gets there in one week. Now, if that were to happen today in the world that we live in, we would immediately get him on every possible talk show. He would be on Ellen. He would be on Oprah. He would be on the Steve Harvey show. He would be on every Christian network imaginable, right? We would encourage him to write a book on how to become a king in a week. Tell us how you did it, Saul. We want to know. Maybe there's a secret you could give us and we could kind of apply that secret to our lives and maybe we could also, you know, be this overnight sensation. Maybe we could also be this overnight success. And so, so we, we have this, this overnight sensation. He's a New York Times bestseller by now. Crowds are flocking from all over to hear him. The multitudes are gathering. His social media following is millions of, of fans, millions of followers. And here we look at this man and we think to ourselves, isn't this really what we say that we want? We really do have this thing where we long to be a king in a week. You know, no one will ever tell me that I have to go look for donkeys again. And the Bible says this king in a week is what the people wanted. If you go back to 1 Samuel 8, Samuel was begging with the nation of Israel to not look at other nations, to not look at the pagan nations. He was begging them. He was pleading with them. He went in great detail what it would cost them to look at the world in the way success comes about. And he was begging with them. But the Bible says they did not want to listen to what God had to say. And so God gave it to them anyway. God said, I'm going to take my hands off. You can have it your way. If that's what you want, you get your king in a week. But the Bible says that God would regret giving King Saul the throne. Could you imagine God saying that to you? Could you imagine God saying, I regret giving you that church. I regret giving you that ministry. I regret giving you that opportunity. I regret opening that door for you. And if you really look up the word regret, it means that someone is dead to you. That's what it means. You all have had people enter your life where where. Something happens, something goes down, and you regret that they ever even entered your life. Now they've exited your life. They're somewhere on the planet breathing air right now, but they're dead to you. You've had a funeral in your mind concerning them. And so God, when he thinks of Saul, he says, he's dead to me. God has a funeral in his mind for King Saul. But Saul never matures beyond this king in a week, genesis of his life. He believed that a king in a week was how God does things. And it crippled him for the rest of his life. He believed that if God was in it, it would look like an overnight success. The way he would measure whether God's hand was on somebody was how quick God raised him up. But if you follow Saul's life, there was all these encounters where God would tell him, for example, you gotta wait for Samuel before you go to battle. Just wait one week, just wait seven days. Samuel was running a little late and he just decides, you know what, forget it. I'm going to go ahead and do it my own way. And Samuel shows up and calls him a fool. What are you doing trying to go at it without the blessing of God? 
another place. God says, hey, when you take out the Amalekites, go, I'm going to give you the instruction to take out everything and everyone, all the livestock. And what Saul do, he's like, ah, well, I think God may, maybe wants me to take out some of them, but not all of them. Surely not all of them. Surely, surely God wouldn't me to, want me to destroy the strong oxen and the strong cattle. Not all of them. Then he's in another time where he's trying to figure out if he's going to go to battle with the Philistines. He doesn't get a vision. He can't get a dream. Samuel's nowhere around, so he goes to the witch of Endor to get a breakthrough. The point is simply this, that what you find in the life of Saul is God never wanted a king in a week. That's not how God does things. When we think about the church today, we go to places like Acts chapter two, right, where we all want this like upper room experience. We all want this Pentecost experience where the mighty rushing wind hits the upper room and tongues of fire falls on every one of them. And, and Peter walks out, 3000 people get saved. Oh, man, that's that's how we want it. But we forget that for three and a half years, the apostles and the disciples left everything that they knew 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They were with Jesus. They faced criticism. They faced enemies. They sacrificed everything everything. Then they were there when he was arrested. They were there when he was being crucified, hiding because they knew the same soldiers that just arrested Jesus were on their way to their house, going door to door, and they were going to end up on a cross just like Jesus was dying at that moment. So they're hiding out, trying to figure out how to survive, trying to figure out how to make it. Then Jesus is raised from the dead, hangs out with them for a little bit longer, but announces, hey, by the way, I'm leaving now. I'm giving it all to you. He's ascending to the right hand of the Father, and he says, go wait and tarry in Jerusalem. And then they go through a 10-day prayer meeting, 10 days, 24 hours straight, 380 say, no thanks, I'm good. I want the king in a week gospel. Can you somehow work that out for me? And they never show up. It's amazing to me how many of us want the upper room experience, but we don't want the path it took to get there. We don't want the process it took to get there. And when we think that way, we end up creating souls. Still can't handle our own demons. Still avoid giants on the battlefield. Still spear throwing because of our insecurities. Still can't keep our words. Still can't keep our commitments. But God, give me that king in a week fix. Give me that king in a week hit. We're junkies. It's not the church anymore. It's a crack house. Our drug of choice is give me a king in a week. Follow me. Affirm me. Like me. Invite me. And God is saying to the church once again, can't you see I don't do it that way? Can't you see that's not my way? But we refuse to listen over and over again. We refuse to get the message. And we just keep on saying give me a king in a week. Saul never fulfills his destiny. Saul destroys his legacy. His end is tragic. His legacy is wasted. I wonder if we could calculate in dollars and cents. I like to do that sometimes. Just calculate in dollars and cents what he actually gave up. I wonder if we could generationally put together a number on what he actually gave up. You know, I'm not an authority on this subject. I'm an observer. I'm an observer of the church. I'm an observer of how God's worked in my life. And the book of Hebrews says that these stories are an illustration for present time. 
And can we be honest for a minute? The biggest mistakes we've made is when we elevate people too quickly. We put people in positions too quickly. We do it mostly because it's so easy, isn't it? We need a new youth pastor. Somebody tells us this guy's really, really great. And so we talk to him. We feel good about him. You know, oh, man, he likes the Seattle Seahawks, too. <laughs> and he seems awesome. He seems amazing. He preached really good. So we, okay, yeah. And, and now, now, now it's off our plates again. Somebody comes to our church. They left that church, and the reason they left that church is because when they came to your church, like, you're really anointed, you can really preach the Bible, and they've been thinking about that, they've been praying about that, and their old church just wasn't really doing that. Oh, yeah, by the way, do you think maybe I could lead a marriage small group? By the way, we wrote this little book, me and my wife did, we self-published it on marriage, and could we lead a small group? And we're like, you know, yeah, sure, amazing, you got a book, great. You think I'm a great preacher? We give them small, and when we think about most of our time is spent working on things, putting out fires from people that we put in a position too quick. We thought it was going to save us time. We thought it was going to help us. Can I give you some nuts and bolts real quick? Every person that you'll ever put into influence, especially the leaders in the room, I know there are many, whether it's hiring someone, giving someone a small group, giving, putting somebody in a ministry position, it's a gamble. Every human being is a gamble. Yeah. Pastor Kevin gambled on me tonight, for example. So we know he lacks judgment, but none, none, nonetheless, but every person is, is a gamble. It's kind of like playing blackjack, though. Y'all know blackjack, right? You're trying to get to 21. You're trying to get to 21 without going over 21. But you know the house is against you, right? I don't gamble. I, I don't gamble. I'm not saying that to be spiritual. I don't. I just am giving you the illustration. So you're doing your best to get as close to 21 without going over 21. And you could be the best discerner of people. You could have a, a leadership pipeline, a hiring process, a, a way that you decide who leaders are and, and how you know who they are. And you're still only going to be 80% effective at best. Study any hiring, the world-renowned people that hire around the world, they're still going to miss it. But the point is, every person is a gamble. Our job is to not take too great of a gamble. Our job is to not be looking for why we should give someone the position. Our job should be, why shouldn't we give them the position? Because the easiest thing to do is to give it away. The hardest thing to do is take it back, right? So let me, give you, let me just give you some examples. Let me just give you some basic examples. 80% of people lie on their resume. You could eliminate most people by just fact-checking a resume. You know, you know how many pastors fact check a resume? Very few. Very few. You know what you could also do? Look at job history. You know, you could also do, do reference checks and just ask the basic questions. Hey, they said they did this job. They said they started on this date. They left at this date. And you would eliminate a significant amount of people because you would find out, no, they didn't hold that position. No, they didn't start. They weren't there for four years. They're only there for a year and a half. And you would find a lot out 
and they're throwing, they're misguiding you concerning that two and a half year gap or whatever it is. You say, why, why is this important? I know significant churches that hire pedophiles because they never do a reference check. Great churches. What am I trying to tell you? We have all these messes because we just throw position away. We just throw position to people. And God is wanting us to slow down a little bit. God's wanting us to create a longer runway. And so let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. I just thought I'd give you some nuts and bolts. Let's look at verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David and Samuel and the men went to Ramah. Scripture sounds very similar to what happened with Saul. But really, the similarities end there. The first time around, we would know that Samuel is the kingmaker. He finds Saul. He anoints him. One week later, he has this massive event. The coronation service starts. The parade gathers by the droves are gathering in the streets to celebrate the king. And you know what? They can't find him anywhere. He's hiding out in the baggage on day one. They eventually find him. They prop him up. The people clap. And if you follow Samuel for the rest of Saul's leadership for 42 years, Samuel's propping him up over and over and over. So this time, Samuel anoints David and he says to him, listen, I'm going to anoint you and then I'm done. I'm going to let God be your kingmaker. I'm going to give you to him. And he asked God to make him. He asked God to mold him. He asked God to shape him. He doesn't set up a coronation service. He doesn't make a public announcement concerning David. He doesn't. There's, there's no big event. There's no parade. There's no party. There's not, none of it. He just anoints him pretty much privately. I mean, his brothers are there, but his brothers can't stand him. So they're not going to talk about it, right? Because they wanted it. And so let's do this real quick. Let's just try, try to get an idea for how this works. All right. So 1 Samuel chapter 10, we read it earlier. We got the camera there. Hopefully I'll, we can do this. All right. He's anointed there. Saul's anointed there. This is Saul. Right there it says Saul was made king. Right? See that? Right there. That's how quick that happened. Now let's go over here. First. Right there, David's made king. Right there, no, nothing happened. Right there, no, no, nothing happened. What about right, right here? Nope. Surely by this time, someone's gonna, no, there, no, 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 no. Now, now the current king's trying to kill David. Okay, so that's not it. Okay. Anything happening there? Anything happening there? Anything happening there? Nope. Here, David's on the run. He's starving to death, so he goes and he eats communion bread to survive. 
Okay, no, no. There, here, right here, Saul kills the city of priests that help feed him, right? Right there, kills the whole town, kills the whole city. So, you know, David, I'm guessing, is thinking at this point, like, God, like, why are you still letting him do all this stuff? Uh, okay, let's keep going. Um, here he throws um, spears. David spares Saul's life. Here Samuel died. The only guy that really knows that he's anointed to be king is dead now. Okay, anything happened there? Anything happened there? Anything happened there? By this time, David has to act like he's crazy and move in with the Philistines to survive. Not looking like a king there. Uh, king there. Nope. King there. Now Ziglag. Now is all their families are kidnapped and gone. So definitely not a king there. King there. Now we're at the end of a book. Now the book's over. He's still not king. Nothing's happening at all. Now look, look here. Now the current king has committed suicide, right? Now, now surely it's his time, right? Nope, not there. 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 Not there. Not there. Not there. Oh, there it is right there. David's anointed king over Israel. 22 years, 22 years. Now let me ask you a question. Who wants that? You know who? Nobody. We even tell the David and Goliath story wrong. We got it wrong. Again, I didn't start off knowing much about David and Goliath, but 30 years later, I know a little bit about it. And I can say most preachers preach David and Goliath wrong. This is how we preach it. David's hanging out with his brothers, right? He's just been anointed king. The brothers are at war that he's on the backside of the desert watching the sheep. Dad calls him up. Hey, take your brothers some lunch. David goes, take the, takes the brothers lunch, right? Starts hearing the uncircumcised Philistine threaten the armies of the living God. David gets upset. Why is this happening? Why aren't you guys doing something about it? The brothers say, David, you're proud. David hears what they're saying, walks over to King Saul, says, hey, I killed a bear. I killed a lion. I'm thinking maybe you should give me a shot at Goliath. And so, so Saul says, oh, wow, thank you. Nice to meet you, too. Here you go. I'm going to go ahead and put the nation in your hands. That's how we, that's how we tell the story. But that's not what happened. David is anointed by Samuel. He then gets called up to go to the palace because King Saul is struggling with tormenting spirits and demons and he cannot sleep. And he's so distraught, he mentions to a servant, is there anything you think that we can do to help me sleep at night? And the servant this no-name servant, it doesn't mention their name, starts to talk about David's class, starts to talk about how he's brave, how he's courageous, how he's, he's excellent at playing the harp. And the no-name servant is giving David a stellar reference, not because David's put her up to it. So watch this. David is not getting access to the king because of how he treated the king's son or how he treated somebody in the king's family. He's getting access because of how he treated a no-name Nobody, nothing, servant. So David gets called up. 
he goes to Saul's. Now, he starts to play the harp. Now, just a side note real quick. Notice king and a weak guy cannot handle his own demons. He's great publicly, but he can't handle his own demons privately. And let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. This is easy. Even if you're not very good, <laughs> this is easy. Getting off the stage is hard. Right? It gets tough, doesn't it? It gets dark, doesn't it? But David, when he walked into the room, hell walked out. And Saul looks at David and he asked him to stay. And David doesn't go back home. He stays in the palace as Saul's armor bearer for probably a year and a half to two years. Every single day, David is with Saul every single day. He's with him as he makes decisions. He watches him call shots. He watches how he handles people. He watches how he, he, he's dealing with enemies. He's watching how he's dealing with, with somebody trying to usurp authority. He's, watch, he's watching him every single day. His, his planning, his, his, his skill. Every single day, David is with Saul. Then at night, Saul can't handle his demons, so David comes in the room, and David's playing the harp. And so imagine, if you will, with me, the amount of conversations David and Saul had in the middle of the night when Saul can't sleep because of the nightmares, and Saul can't sleep because of the tormenting spirit. Just take a second and think about the kind of conversations Saul and David would have had at that hour. I'm saying, think about how close David and Saul would have become. Then the war with the Philistines break out, breaks out. Saul goes out to war. He fi David finds out his brothers are at war, so he asks Saul if he can go check on his dad. So David is still worried about his dad at this point, goes to check on his dad. He's been in the palace for a year and a half, two years. When he goes to check on his, his dad, his dad doesn't ask him, how's the palace? Hey, congratulations. Sounds like the king really likes you. I'm so proud of this. No, he doesn't do that. He gives him some lunch and says, hey, why don't you take this to your brothers on the front line of the battle? So he does. He takes the lunch. He goes to his brothers who are in the trenches. He gives them the lunch. Then he hears Goliath threatening the people of the living God. And he looks at his brothers. Why aren't we doing something about it? His, his brothers say, you're proud. Why? Because they're upset that he's living in the palace, right? And they're still back here. And so, so David gets up. He goes to King Saul. Remember, he's his armor bearer. He goes to King Saul and says, hey, King Saul, I, can I have a few minutes of your time? Of course, David. What, what, what's up? What do you need? He says... I know I haven't really discussed this much with you, but there were times when I was on the backside of the desert with my dad and, and I had a bear come and I had the lion come. And Saul knows David's not talk. Saul knows he's looked in David's eyes and watched hell leave the room every single night. He knows David's not a self-promoter. He knows David doesn't blow smoke. He knows when David says something, he does it. He does not overpromise and underproduce. When David says he's going to do something, he executes. And so Saul says, do you want to wear my armor? Do you want my sword? He put the nation in David's hands, not because David said, give me a shot. 
It was David's faithfulness that gave him access to the king. It was David's faithfulness that gave him the opportunity to stand on the battlefield. It was David's faithfulness that developed his sling throwing skills. It was a different path for David. It was a path filled with hard work, demons, betrayal, disappointment. David probably thought at some point my being the king's armor bearer will lead to the crown. Maybe taking out Goliath will lead to me being king. Maybe marrying the king's daughter, Michael, will help me one day gain access to the throne. Maybe befriending the king's uh, son, Jonathan, will help me. He knows he's been anointed. He knows he's been called. He knows he has a prophecy. And he's sitting there looking at the king and a weak guy. And I'm guessing he's wondering, God, why aren't you using me? You gave it to him in a week. Why did it happen to him so quickly? And why not me? Why aren't you doing something for me? Why, why aren't you moving like that for me? But God's the kingmaker this time. And this time it will be different. He'll have no affirmation from his earthly father or brothers, no affirmation from his father-in-law, King Saul. He'll be rejected by his wife, betrayed by anyone and everyone that's supposed to love and support him. The way when you look at David, the people closest to him wanted him to fail. They wanted him to die. They made it their mission to destroy him and went to great lengths to kill him. David's runway to the throne was one of forgiveness, humility, kindness, loneliness. It was a different path, but in all environments, in all atmospheres, the good and the bad, David stayed focused on what God called, God called him to. And David knew. What did David know? I don't want the king in a week program. I'm not signing up for that. 22 years of messy, painful, confusing I'm on a different program. You know, the Bible says the Lord sought for a man after his own heart. It's one thing for God to have your heart. It's another thing for you to have his. He gets your heart in a moment. That's called salvation. It takes a lifetime to get his heart. When he gets my heart, you know what that says? I can trust him. When I get his heart, you know what it says? He can trust me. I know I can trust him, but can he trust me? Should. Should he trust me? John Maxwell said, good questions inform great questions transform should he trust you in the end David's destiny was fulfilled generations were blessed of course God chooses David's bloodline to bring Jesus into the earth let's look at Revelation chapter 3 verse 7 and I'll be I'll be finished this is a text that I'm sure you've heard preached before on the key of David. This is Jesus speaking. And it says, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, who opens and no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. 
Again, think about this in reference to what we've just talked about. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door and no one can shut it. I know you have little strength, but you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Let's drop down to verse 10. Since you've kept my command and you've endured patiently. I love that phrase. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make him a pillar in the temple. No king in a week in this text. Let's look at the words in this text. Patience, endurance, hold on. You're of little strength, but you've not denied my name. Pillar, let no one take your crown. And I love talking to people who feel like God's not going to do it for them. Like it's never going to happen for them. But if man gave David his crown, man could take it. But God raised David up. God gave him his crown and no man could take it. And many tried to take his crown. Crown. Enemies from the outside tried. Enemies from the inside tried. His own son went for it. But we know that no man took David's crown because God was his kingmaker. And I just want to challenge you tonight. Let God open the doors. Let God close the doors. Every rejection you've ever experienced is God's protection. I used to thank God for the open doors. But the truth of the matter is now I look back and I think about those doors that I, I wanted to open so bad. And I would bang on the door and I'd push on the door and I'd kick the door. But God was on the other side because of his goodness and his love for me with his foot and his shoulder say, I'm not going to let this door open. I'm not going to let you in this. You don't know what's on the other side, but I'm going to make sure you don't get through this door because when God shuts the door, can nobody open it. And God makes kings. Make no mistake about it. We're kings and priests. But statistically speaking, if you want the king in a week stuff, you won't be here in 10 years. Statistically speaking, the odds are stacked against you. You won't be here. This last Sunday, an old preacher, 92 years old, wanted to meet me because his daughter goes to our church. 92 years old. None of you know him. But he's been preaching the gospel for 72 years. And you know what he did the whole time? Encouraged me. Told me my best days were in front of me. Can we just take a second and remember that Jesus is really the king of glory that we're to look to? And he had no golden crown, right, filled with priceless jewels. No, they took a bloody, brutal, savage crown of thorns and they crushed his head with it. You know, when he comes back again, right, the eastern sky riding on the white horse, right, his, his eyes a flame of fire, his hair white like wool, his vesture is dipped in what? Blood. It's not expensive silk. It's not fine linen. How we'll know him, his vesture will be dipped in blood, sacrifice. Mm. 
but no one can take that crown because no man gave it to him. He'll use deserts, caves, famines, prisons, crosses, tombs. But if God raises you up, it'll look a lot more like what it did for Jesus. It'll look a lot more like it did for David. So no matter how long it takes, if you're anointed for it, you'll get there if you don't quit. God can use, God can use sinners. God can use God can use failures, but he cannot use a quitter. No man can take your crown. When God gives it to you, you just trust. He orders my steps and my stops, my ups, my downs. When I'm on the mountain and when I've hit rock bottom, I'm blessed going in. Sometimes I'm blessed because I'm on my way out. I'm blessed in the city, right? Everybody's around, but I'm best blessed in that lonely field. No one's around, just me and me. I'm blessed. Jesus, you told me real specifically, as clear as you ever have, that you wanted to baptize this room tonight with a spirit of endurance, not a spirit of success, not a spirit of increase. And some of us are so indoctrinated to even say that we throw up a, a wall. What? You're not praying for increase. You're not praying for my church to grow. No, no. We don't need no more fast growing churches. What you're a part of tonight, this is a enduring church, right? The church has taken decades and decades and decades and decades to build. I came to this church 20 some years ago and it is what you see now. In other words, this place is a rock. This place is like, is so solid. You can't hardly think straight. When you get, it, when you get in it, you're just like, man, this is solid. There's no height. This is, this is no joke. This is someone that's faced demons. This is somebody that's paid the price. And so Jesus, just lift your hands up towards heaven. I promise I'm done. Every church, every leader, every, every person in this room, God, would you give us a spirit of endurance? God, we've been striving, we've been pushing, we've been wrestling, we've been comparing, we, we've been doubting, we, we just, we've been, we measure so wrong today, but God, you, you've given us this message. You didn't give me this message. I wasn't smart enough to come up with this message.
You're raising up pillars. You're raising up people that know how to endure. And tonight we say thank you for every closed door. Thank you for blocking us, hiding us, making us invisible. People looked over us, went around us, and for some reason we just keep saying, hey, 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 anybody even notice? But tonight we notice that in those times you are hiding us and you're raising them up. And there is greatness, unique and personal greatness in store for each and every person in this room. But that unique greatness is going to include endurance and patience. So pour out a spirit of endurance. I don't even know if there is such a thing, but God, just I'm just asking that you give us a mind, give us a heart, give us a spirit on the inside that just says we will not be distracted on what you're doing with somebody else, how you're raising up somebody else. Most of it's monopoly money anyway. God, we want to stay the course. We want to go the long call. We want to endure to the end in Jesus' name. And my prophecy is that no man will take their crown. No man will take what you've called them to in Jesus' name. Come on, let's give the Lord a good hand clap together.